Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. So sometimes when we live the Christian life, when we live like we just sang in that song, I will glory in my Redeemer, uh, we get strange looks. Uh, People wonder, you know, why have we made these choices? Why are we living these ways? Maybe you have felt that. Maybe even living in our culture, you've began to wonder, is it crazy? to really believe that there's this man who came to earth from heaven, who lived a sinless life. I mean, really? That he was innocently put to death? I mean, you actually believe that? That he rose again from the dead? What? Now we're really getting crazy. Believe that this man came from heaven, lived a perfect life, died, but now you're telling me he rose from the dead? Yeah, right. But it doesn't just get that crazy. From there, we believe he ascended to heaven. What? And that it's actually reasonable for us to trust in him for salvation from our sins. What? Yes. And then that it makes sense to live this life for the next life. Because we believe there's a heaven and a hell and a resurrection and that we will, who have trusted in Christ, we will have, we live for Him, live with Him forever. And so, and so we arrange this life and our choices and stewardship and actions for the next life. What? This, this is all extremely countercultural. That a person would, would make a choice to, to sacrifice, to do good to others, to serve and please this Savior with some hope of eternity? That, that you'll have rewards in heaven and, and live with Him forever? Okay. You see, the, the, the Christian life is just completely countercultural. This is not what people around us who, who don't know Christ are, are thinking and doing and the way that we're living. And when we really live these things out, it can kind of look like we're crazy. Maybe you felt that way. Is it really worth it living for this Jesus? Is it really worth it facing the, the pain and the difficulty and day in and day out trying to say no to myself and yes to him? Is it really worth it to suffer for his name, or am I really just crazy? We can even begin to question ourselves as the culture around us would look at us this way. This is the debate, this is the big question that Luke draws in today's passage. Is it crazy to live for Jesus? Is it crazy to believe that he died and rose again? Is it really worth it to live for him? Paul stands in one corner of our debate today, representing the answer to that question that says, no, it's not crazy. In fact, it's the only reasonable, logical way to live, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to live for the one who died for you and rose again. And this is the resounding testimony of Paul before Festus and Agrippa. And those are the characters who stand in the other corner. 
Uh, with great pomp, entering the room and sitting on the judgment seat and listening as Paul portrays his testimony. I mean, we hear the words right from Festus's mouth, from his corner, saying, you have lost your mind. Much learning has driven you mad. And this is many times the perspective of those who see the choices we make in seeking to live for Jesus. So which is it? And as Luke paints this picture with Paul on one side uh, claiming the name of Christ and saying, no, it's not crazy to believe in him and to live for him, and Festus and Agrippa in the other corner claiming, you are out of your mind. Who wins? Is it really crazy? Well, you could probably guess which answer I'm going to propose to you today. The answer is no, it's not crazy to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I think as we look at Paul's life, we could conclude it's actually the only reasonable, logical uh, way to live. It's the only way to live that acknowledges reality. And we're going to see how, how this story sort of unfolds that for us and unpacks that for us. And so my goal for you today is that you would be encouraged, even if they call you crazy, even if you feel crazy, it's not crazy to keep living for Christ and to keep proclaiming the name of Christ. So be encouraged today by the testimony of Paul. Even if they call you crazy, keep proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I use the word proclaim there because uh, foundationally it is a message, it's words, and those words are necessary for a person to believe. But we also proclaim with our lives, with the the choices we make, the decisions, the, the way we arrange our lives, what we do, and what we'll see that in Paul's life as well. Even if they call you crazy, keep proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's see how this story unfolds in Acts chapter 25. This first section, we're going to see that those who are witnesses for Jesus will often be misunderstood. This opening session, the Apostle Paul really doesn't get a chance to speak yet. It's all introductory, and it's Festus talking with Agrippa, describing sort of some of the background here. And what's really clear is that things aren't clear, (laughs) What's, what's obvious is that they don't really get what Paul is doing. They don't understand him. And this is the kind of the foundation for which they, they conclude that he's crazy. So follow along with me in chapter 25, beginning verse 13. You remember the context? Festus is the new governor of the region. And after a few days, King Agrippa and Bernice come to visit him. Well, let's pause and see who, who is this King Agrippa and who is Bernice, okay? Festus, you remember, is the governor in the Caesarea region, so he's Roman through and through. And he's one with actually has Roman authority. He's uh, one of the governors, which is the next position below Caesar. So he has quite a bit of power, but he's new to the job. Agrippa has a title as well, which not, is not mentioned in this text. It's actually Herod Agrippa. Do you remember the title Herod? It's come up a number of times in our study of the Gospel of John. There was a Herod in charge. That was actually, uh, so the Herod that uh, called for all the little babies to be killed when Jesus was born, that was called Herod the Great. That's this Herod's great-grandpa, okay? 
So that gives you a little bit of context. Do you remember the Herod in Acts chapter 12 who spoke out against God and kind of called himself a God and then died on the spot being eaten by worms? Remember that Herod? That would be this Herod's grandpa. Okay, so, so we're kind of uh, a lineage of Herods here. And the Herods had a unique role. Okay, so this is Herod Agrippa II. Their role was to sort of serve as liaison between Rome and the Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, the Jews had such a unique culture compared to Rome that you could sort of think of the Herods as like an ambassador to the Jews. <laughs> and so they were usually Jewish. They usually believed and understood at least enough of Jewish religion and Jewish culture that they could sort of serve as liaison between Rome and Judaism. And they didn't actually have a whole lot of power, but they were highly respected even among Romans because they understood things that the Romans didn't understand, right? And so Festus does rightly show him a lot of respect, actually calls him King Agrippa, uh, even though he, he didn't technically have a role as king. He was often seen with that title because of his role among the Jews. Rome had given him authority over the temple treasury and to choose the high priest, so these were some of the things that uh, King Agrippa would have done. Bernice was his sister, so there you go. That's how Bernice comes into play. Uh, she's kind of tagging along here uh, on the, the journeys with Agrippa. And this is just a neat example of the ancient days and how those who are rich and powerful sort of just traveled and uh, fraternized with one another. And so they've come to visit Festus and do some patting each other on the back and, you know, relationships and all of that. Networking, we could call it today. Okay, so Agrippa comes to town and Festus realizes, actually, this is the perfect guy to ask about what in the world is going on with Paul. Because Agrippa would have understood a little bit about Judaism and would maybe be able to clue Festus in as to what in the world Paul is talking about. And so that's basically what Festus describes to Agrippa in verses 14 uh, all the way down through verse 26. Festus explains how, he, you know, Paul has testified, but he doesn't fully understand what's going on. Uh, he, you know, if you look down at verse um, 17, Festus describes how he, he sat on the judgment seat and commanded him to be brought in according to the, the Roman custom so Paul could represent himself. But in verse 20, he mentions, I, I didn't fully understand what he was talking about, so I thought maybe I could send him to Jerusalem. He doesn't mention that he wanted to do the Jews a favor like we learned last week. Uh, he doesn't mention that to Agrippa here. But at any rate, uh, I was going to send him back to Jerusalem to see if that would help solve things. Uh, but again, the, the conclusion of the matter is that he doesn't really get what Paul is talking about. And Festus is laying this all out before Agrippa. So we come down to verse 21 Festus concludes his summary. Uh, Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus. That word Augustus is a title. It means like your honor or highly revered one. And so they often called the, the current Caesar, whoever it was, they often called them Augustus because it just meant, you know, your majesty or something like that. So he appealed to Augustus and, to be, and commanded to be kept uh, until he could be sent to Caesar. Well, verse 22, we learn another perspective. So we've got Festus who's confused by all this, but now we have Agrippa who's curious, okay? He doesn't understand. He's heard some of these things. There's been a little bit of information out there, but he doesn't get it. So he actually says in verse 22, I would like to hear this man. 
So Festus agrees, tomorrow you will hear him. Now I love verse 23. Uh, Steve, you read it so well. Uh, the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come in with great pomp, right? <laughs> great, with great pomp. Maybe you've been at a graduation where they played uh, pomp and circumstance, right? And so that's why all the graduates marched down the aisle with great pomp, right? Okay, you've seen those scenarios before. Well, uh, Agrippa and Bernice, because they don't actually have all that much power, as it were, they have to enter rooms with great pomp to show how much uh, authority they have, even though they don't really have it. And so you can imagine, you know, the trumpets and the robes and the maybe confetti being thrown, you know, whatever. All of this stuff that they've arranged to enter the room with great laud and celebration, you know, to show, oh, we're so honored to have Agrippa and Bernice here. But what's actually happening, okay? And here's where I want you to imagine uh, Luke, our author, describing this with great intentionality. Why does he include this little thing about great pomp here, right? It was actually very common that when someone with authority like this would enter a room, they would enter with great pomp. But Luke is pointing it out because I think he's drawing this contrast. He's painting a picture for us, and you can imagine it, right? Imagine Paul standing up here in this large auditorium where the King Agrippa and Bernice come in with pomp, and there's all these prominent men. So, so they're over here with the confetti and the trumpets and the robes and all these wonderful things. And there's little old Paul standing over here all by himself with his chains. He's filthy. Two years now, he's been living in prison, right? Do you see the contrast that's being painted for us? And it's all a part of this big question. Which of the two are crazy? Okay, who's really crazy here? And so far, it's beginning to look like Agrippa and Festus with all their pomp are the ones who are not crazy. Paul in his chains and filthiness over here all by himself, he might be the crazy one. Well, let's continue on and see how the question is answered. So they come in with pomp, verse 23, Paul is brought in. And uh, Festus introduces the scene in verse 24, right? I, I, I've heard Paul before, he says in verse 24, um, they're crying out that he's not fit to live any longer, Verse 25, I couldn't determine anything he had done, though. And so I've brought him before you to examine him. And here's the key thing. Notice verse 27. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Did you catch the word? Unreasonable. So even there, Agrippa and Festus, with all their pomp, with all this showing before everybody, what's the goal? To be seen as reasonable, right? We need to determine the cause for sending Paul to Caesar. We can't send him to Caesar and not be able to explain what the charges are. Well, he's an innocent man, but we're sending him to you anyway. No, so we've got to come up with some charges because that's reasonable, right? So again, the, the picture is painted. The drama is laid. The, the positions are set. Festus and Agrippa over here with their pomp and their pride and their reasonableness. And Paul over here. Pff, this filthy guy in chains must be crazy. Well, we'll see how the story continues to unfold. But for now, we learn simply this lesson. When we stand testimony for Christ, when we witness for Christ, we will often be misunderstood. 
This is a scenario that's not uncommon. What the Apostle Paul faced is not unique to him. He lived his life bearing witness for Christ, and he was misunderstood. And now those with great prominence look down on him as one who has maybe lost his mind. It's not fun to be misunderstood. And when that happens in the Christian life, it can be tempting then to wonder, is it really worth it? I mean, should I really keep standing up for what is right? Or am I the one who really is crazy? I remember one point which I was misunderstood to a great embarrassment. You know, those little moments, embarrassing moments in life really stick with you, right? They just like are etched into your memory. I was a freshman in college, and it was the first couple weeks of class. And so if you've been in college, some of you are in that stage of life right now, uh, you can remember back to those days, the, the first starting point of, of your classes, there's a lot of nerve, nervousness there, right? You're meeting new people, uh, you're kind of setting your reputation, what are people going to think of me, so on and so forth. And so the specific class that I was in, I don't remember the class or even why this question was asked, but the teacher of the class asked, posed a question to the class. They said, what's the most quoted verse in the Bible? I I think it was a philosophy class or something like that. What's the most quoted verse in the Bible? And right away, I was excited to answer the question because just recently I had read an article that described how actually the most quoted verse in the Bible is a verse that's not in the Bible at all. It's uh, the saying that says, God helps those who helps themselves, right? God helps those who help themselves. And so this was labeled the most quoted Bible verse. The, the irony is it's not actually in the Bible anywhere, right? And so I knew the answer. I had read the article and I, ah, it's this, it's this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. So I poo, popped my hand up, you know, excited to answer the question and told the professor of the class, uh, it's the phrase, God helps those who helps themselves, like, nope, sorry, that's actually not in the Bible. You know, I shook down the, the class, all began snickering and laughing. You know, he, doesn't, he thought that was in the Bible. You know, it was like, oh my goodness, is that guy crazy? Right? So, I shrunk down small, like, okay, well, I got that one wrong. I will not be answering any more questions for the rest of my college career. It was a simple misunderstanding, right? Uh, you know, I, I knew it wasn't in the Bible, but I thought that was a trick question kind of a thing. You know, anyway, I don't need to defend myself to you here today. <clears throat> it's not fun to be misunderstood, is it? It's embarrassing and, the, you know, our faces get red and we get hot all of a sudden and everyone's looking at us and snickering and laughing and it's not pleasant to be misunderstood. But sometimes, when we live the Christian life the way God has called us to live it, we will be misunderstood. And it's actually helpful to know that and to remember that, to look at the life of the Apostle Paul as he stood there in his chains claiming to believe in Jesus. And Festus and Agrippa with all their pomp and power and prominent men gathered in this courtroom look down on him with contempt. (laughs) What is with this crazy guy? Can you imagine being in that room on that day? It's not fun to be misunderstood, but there are times when that's what God will call us to do. Why? Because those misunderstandings will often open the door for us to represent Christ. And that's what we're going to see in the next scene. Paul will have the opportunity to testify about Jesus. 
But in our own lives, we will at times be misunderstood. There, there are some who will hate Christianity because of things that have happened. I got burned by the church. I knew a Christian once. He was the worst person I've ever met. It's all a scam. Do you really believe Jesus died and rose from the dead? There's all sorts of opposition that we can face being a part of those who follow Christ. Others will be curious. What is this Christianity you speak about? Who was Jesus and what did he do? Our lives should be focused on this crucified and risen Savior, Jesus. You know, I think sometimes that's where we get off a little bit in Christianity. We, we stand on the wrong hills. We, we have our battles in the wrong places. Paul here is uh, on the witness stand not because he thinks Roman slavery is evil. He's on the witness stand not because he doesn't like Nero, who, who would go on as Caesar to persecute Christians. Paul's not on the witness stand for his political views or any of those kinds of things. Paul is on the witness stand about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the Christian faith is all about. It's really interesting, Festus, in his summary to Agrippa, actually summarizes it really well. Did you notice that? He says it back in verse 19. But they had some questions about him and their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. That says a lot about Paul's testimony to Festus, because actually, Festus hits the nail on the head. That is what it's all about. It's all about this man named Jesus, who claims to be the Savior of the world, who died for the sins of all people and rose from the grave. Festus actually gets it. He caught the vision. The Christian faith is not about politics. It's not about perspective on culture. The center of the Christian faith is not about our views on abortion or homosexuality or gender dysphoria. We should have clear stances on those things. We should. But Christianity will always be at its core about the crucified and risen Savior. And we need to work harder to keep that the focus of our lives. Sometimes we get so, so passionate about the other hills of the Christian life, and we forget what this is really all about. It's about Jesus. Paul is on trial about the crucified and risen Lord. As we center our lives on the gospel, may it be that we're misunderstood, not for our views on other things, but because of our views about the Lord Jesus himself. As we see this unfold, we're going to notice number two today that those misunderstandings will open the door for Paul to testify about Jesus. As Festus and Agrippa kind of claim that he's crazy, it actually opens the door for Paul to share his faith. And this is a beautiful thing. So the Apostle Paul shares his story in chapter 26. Now, for us as a church, having worked our way through the the book of Acts, this is actually the third time that we get to hear Paul's testimony. The the first is Luke's actually writing of it. The second time was when Paul shared himself. And then now this is the third time Paul again sharing in his own defense is how, how he was converted to faith in Christ. And so we'll work through this quickly, but I want you to notice a few things about it as we review Paul's conversion. 
He begins in chapter 26 by reviewing the fact that he actually believed in Orthodox Judaism. He's not coming up with something crazy here. You'll notice how he puts that in verses 4 and 5. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent beginning uh, among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. But then he says, even now, I'm still being judged for the hope of the Jewish people. Look what he says in verse 6. Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise by God to our fathers. Paul is saying that he's actually being judged that day based on the teaching of the Old Testament. What teaching is he talking about? He mentions a promise to the Jewish fathers. Well, let's answer that question first. Who are the Jewish fathers? Well, it goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you remember what promise, starting with Abraham, was given to Israel or the descendants of Abraham? God said to Abraham, you know, there's a, the promise included a number of things, right? I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, right? I will bless all nations through your seed, and I will give you this land. Okay, so that's a rich promise. It was repeated to uh, Abraham's son Isaac. It was repeated to Isaac's son Jacob. And this is the root, foundational promise and hope of the Jewish people. And Paul says to them, I'm standing before you today based on the hope of the promise to our fathers. What in the world is he talking about? Well, let's remember that promise. There's two key things that I think Paul is thinking of here. First of all, there's the promise that through Abraham's seed, all nations will be blessed. Who is that seed? The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for the sins of the world and offers that blessing of God, salvation by faith in the name of Jesus Christ, not just to Israel, but to all nations who would trust in him. But there's a second aspect of that promise that I think Paul is referring to. And that's the fact that Abraham did not fully receive those promises in his lifetime. The Apostle Paul is going to, rep- rec- uh, is going to reference the promise of resurrection. This was actually something that Jews believed in. They believed that they would be raised to life at the end of time and God would fulfill his promises. Jesus referred to this himself when he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he went on to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. These men are (laughs) as good as alive because of the resurrection. So I think Paul's actually referring to the fact that Jesus proves that the promise to Abraham will be fulfilled because Jesus proves there is a resurrection. He rose from the dead. That's why later he says to Agrippa, it's not crazy to believe in a resurrection. It's what the Old Testament talks about. So the Apostle Paul is laying out this very logical explanation of how what he is proclaiming aligns perfectly with the Old Testament. And it's interesting that by God's provision, Agrippa is there to hear and understand these things. So he says in verse 8, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? (laughs) right? There's a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that still needs to be fulfilled. So, of course, God's going to raise the dead. It shouldn't be seen as crazy or incredible. 
So again, there's this debate. Who's crazy? Who's not crazy? So Paul is unfolding these things to Agrippa. He mentions in verses 9 through 11 that he was also confused at one point. That's why he was persecuting. He didn't understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise. And so he persecuted Christians himself. And it was while he was persecuting, we come to verse 12. The story of his conversion. When Jesus entered into his life and called him to faith in Christ. Paul recounts it once again. The, there are a couple of differences in this recounting that we just get some more information we don't have in the other stories. Uh, Paul says here a phrase that Jesus mentioned, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was like a, a, a stick used to prod an animal. And so it's a reference to the fact that Paul was resisting God in this. Furthermore, we have a statement from Jesus, which is really beautiful in verses 16 through 18. Jesus tells Paul to rise and stand on his feet. He's given him a purpose to minister and witness of the things which he's seen and the things which will be revealed. He will be delivered from Jews and Gentiles for this reason. Catch verse 18. This is a great verse. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That is a beautiful statement from the Lord Jesus Christ summarizing both what the gospel is and what the purpose of being a gospel witness does. Jesus is calling the Apostle Paul to be a witness to the gospel so that as he proclaims the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, people's eyes will be opened. They'll turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And with that, receiving forgiveness of sins and an eternal inheritance with God's people, all all offered by faith. That's an incredible statement of the gospel beautiful explanation of the goal of Christ's saving work on the cross. Through the preaching of the gospel, God indeed opens the eyes of the blind. He indeed leads a sinner from the power of Satan to the power of God, offering forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. What Paul has done by sharing this story about the the bright light from heaven by the opening of blind eyes, is he's added to the argument of who's crazy here. Did you notice that? Because now, in the words of Christ, he's describing that when God enters your life, he fixes your blindness. The light of God's glory opens your eyes to stop living under the power of Satan and to start living for God. So now we have a clear understanding of what's really going on here. And as Paul will continue to unfold, we're going to see, no, it's not crazy to believe in Jesus. In fact, we're actually not seeing reality when we don't believe in Jesus. So Paul shares the gospel. And then we come to verses 19 through 23 where he, he uh, leans in uh, to how he responded to the gospel. In verse 19, it's just this very logical statement. So, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I mean, what can a person say to that, right? Well, Jesus told me to do something. This voice from heaven called me to do something, so I decided to obey it. You know, what are they supposed to say to that? (laughs) No, you should have disobeyed it. Of course, it makes sense. 
And so he continues to unfold it here. He began preaching the gospel, calling people to repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance, verse 20. And so he concludes his statement in verses 22 and 23. His purpose is to proclaim that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, to proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. All of this, Paul explains the the purpose of his standing before them, and it's this beautiful testimony, not only of his own conversion, but sharing the gospel with Festus and Agrippa in a reasonable, logical way. Just laying it all out there. Agrippa, it matches perfectly with God's prophecies in the Old Testament, with the history of Israel in Genesis, uh, with what was predicted. God has unfolded things just as he said. So it's not crazy to believe in Jesus. In fact, it aligns perfectly with history and what God has spoken in his word. As people have misunderstandings, it often opens the door to testify about Jesus. I remember in high school, I went to a public high school and uh, was one of just a handful of uh, Protestant Christians. We had a lot in our church, uh, in the Catholic, or excuse me, a lot in our school from the Catholic church, uh, but not very many Protestants. There were so few Protestants uh, that I was, that I know of, the only Baptist in our school of uh, 2,000 students. Uh, And so uh, that was a unique situation. It actually opened a lot of cool doors for me because people would find out uh, my dad was a pastor. People would find out that I was a Baptist. And uh, once they heard that word especially, it was kind of like, what in the world is that, right? Now, there are all sorts of things that I could have talked about in being a Baptist, right? Well, we love potlucks. Um, I could tell you that, or, uh, you know, being Baptist, we, uh, we, we dunk people, right? So that's kind of, you could think about that. Uh, there's any number of ways that I could have answered that question. I don't remember, maybe my youth pastor uh, along the way, uh, somebody had pointed out to me, well, there, there's so many th- ways you could explain the answer to that. We encourage you to just make a beeline to the Lord Jesus Christ, make a beeline to the gospel, Right? If somebody's asking you what you believe as a, as a Baptist, you can honestly answer that the most important thing you believe is a crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Ah, that makes a whole lot of sense. And so I began to adapt my answer to that question to just right away go to Jesus. Now, I'm understanding that, you know, other denominations wouldn't necessarily deny that truth, right? But isn't that really what it's all about? And so the Lord opened the door for me to share the gospel with quite a few of my friends and others in my high school. They'd ask me, what in the world does it mean to be a Baptist? Well, let me start here. We believe that we're sinners, that God sent Jesus from heaven in his love to live a perfect life, to bear my sins and your sins on the cross, that he died in my place and rose again from the dead. That if I trust in him as Savior, I receive forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Or as Jesus puts it here, to have my eyes opened from their blindness to be released from the power of Satan and transferred into God's love. See, misunderstandings and questions can often open the door for us to share the gospel. That's exactly what happens here. Festus doesn't understand. Uh, Agrippa is confused. And so these questions open the door for the Apostle Paul to share the gospel. Maybe you're here today and you're hearing this testimony for the first time and it's time for you to respond to the heavenly vision like Paul did. 
You've heard the truth that this Jesus came from heaven, God the Son, lived a perfect life as a man, died in our place on the cross. Today is the day that God is stepping into your life, ready to open your blind eyes to be freed from the power of Satan and to trust in Christ. Would you trust in Him today? Would you respond to the heavenly vision we've just listened to in Acts 26? Maybe you've already responded to God's intervention in your life and you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Then respond like Paul encourages here to repent, to believe, and to do works that fit with repentance, to bear fruit, that our lives would show that I believe in this Jesus. You see, Paul's building the argument here that it's not only trusting in Christ that's reasonable, logical, and so forth, but then living for Christ is the only logical way to live. Living a life that shows fruit of repentance, that makes it clear that indeed my eyes have been opened from their blindness. I do now see reality that God exists, that He created all things, that He sent His Son, that He loves me, and that living for Jesus is the only way to live. This is reality. So Paul is actually building his argument against Festus and Agrippa here that believing in Jesus is logical and living for Jesus is logical. Again, these misunderstandings open the door to testify about Jesus. As we finish our story, we come to verses 24 through 26. And here we really read uh, the climax of the story as, as Paul presses in on Agrippa's life. Festus actually interrupts the gospel presentation there in verse 24. Paul is, you know, maybe coming to the point where he's going to ask the question, and Festus just loudly interrupts. He, he has the right. It's his courtroom. Paul, you are beside yourself. It, it sort of means you've, you've lost your mind is, is another way to put that. Much learning is driving you mad. He recognizes that Paul has, on one hand, spoken very knowledgeably here. He recognizes that Paul has much learning but to Festus, it all seems crazy. Do you, you really believe in this resurrection? You really believe that it's worth living for these things? Paul, you've lost your mind. Notice how Paul responds in verse 25. I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Paul is building his case that Believing in Jesus and living for Jesus is reasonable and logical. It's not crazy. But when God opens your eyes to see the truth about Jesus, then we finally see reality. We're freed from the power of Satan and actually see the world as it truly is and are able to live in a way that is truly reasonable and logical. And so we learn from Paul in this final section, though responses will vary Love and truth compel us to continue to live for Jesus. It's the only reasonable way to live. It's the only reasonable way to live. So Paul responds, I'm not mad. I speak the words of truth and reason. He turns specifically in verse 26 to King Agrippa. And you can almost imagine if we were watching a movie, right? This is where the camera would zoom way in on Agrippa's face as Paul turns to Agrippa and says, King Agrippa, I know you understand these things. They weren't done in a corner. 
Do you believe the prophets? Now, that is a wise question. Now, if we're talking just like logic and parrying of words here, I think the Lord has helped Paul in this moment because this is one of those questions that you can't back out of. It's a beautiful question. He asks Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And Agrippa's sort of left with no choice. What Paul has done is he's presented Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. So to ask a question like that, if Agrippa says, yes, I believe the prophets, then he's saying, based on Paul's argument, I also believe in Jesus. But if he answers no, he's rejecting Judaism, right? And so he's left in this catch-22. And Paul is hoping that this will encourage Agrippa to answer correctly. Believe the prophets, believe in Jesus. It's logical, it's reasonable. Agrippa is apparently too caught up in the stigma of Christianity because he says in verse 28, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, the word Christian was not used the way it's used today. The word Christian was used derogatorily. So, uh, this emphasizes in Agrippa's mind uh, that I think Christianity is actually what's holding him up from saying he believes in Jesus. Because to become a Christian was to become sort of an outcast, this strange new sect of Judaism that nobody really understood, that wasn't really recognized by Rome at this point. And the Jewish Agrippa could not be seen becoming a Christian. And so he rejects it. I think in his words we see he recognizes that it's logical, that it makes sense, but I can't handle the stigma. I can't do that as king. So we see Paul's heart in verse 29. He just, he longs that not only Agrippa, but everybody in the room would believe in Jesus the way he has. But not just that, would also become a witness for Jesus like he has. The only thing he spares here is the chains themselves. <laughs> okay, I don't want you to be in chains. But oh, that you would believe in Jesus and that you become a witness for Jesus. The two go hand in hand. You can't believe in Jesus without becoming a witness for Jesus. It's all part of the logic. It's all part of the reasonableness of our faith that Paul proposes here. So as Luke paints this picture, now towards the end, it becomes obvious who is really speaking in the room with logic and reason. Who is really seeing reality? Well, it's little old Paul in his filth and chains over here, as now Paul owns the room. Paul is now the one interrogating Agrippa and Festus, and all eyes are on him. Logic has won the day, <laughs> and they in all their pomp can't defeat little old Paul. So they have their little conference at the end. They acknowledge to one another, he's right. He's not done anything wrong. His message makes sense. What are we supposed to do? And Agrippa concludes, well, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could release him. Paul actually wins. Paul wins. We could camp on that last statement and went, oh no, was it a mistake for Paul to have appealed to Caesar? I mean, should he have just waited until this moment and then he would have been released? But as we studied last week, I think this is all part of the plan of God. If Paul had been released, it was very likely that the Jews were waiting to <laughs> put him to death along the road. Remember, 
They've been camping outside, hoping for that opportunity for a long time. Agrippa and Festus don't know that. And so Paul's appeal to Caesar, I think, is still a part of God's plan. It's not some statement at the end like, oh no, he could have been released. God's not in control anymore. No, it's God wants Paul to testify. Think about this. How else would Agrippa, Festus, the prominent men of Caesarea, and now probably uh, Caesar himself, have all had the chance to hear a clear, logical, reasonable gospel message, except the working of a sovereign God. Isn't that cool? A God who is pursuing even Caesar himself with the gospel message. (laughs) Isn't that like our God? to work through just one little old witness standing in the corner in his chains and in his filth presenting the reality of the world, the only logical, reasonable way to see things that God indeed exists, that he does love us, that he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, that that Jesus rose from the grave paying for our sins in full, that anyone who trusts in Christ as Savior has their sins forgiven and is granted an inheritance with the saints forevermore. That's logic, that's truth, that's reason. Though responses will vary, our love for Jesus and our possession of the truth compels us to keep preaching the gospel, keep proclaiming, keep living for Jesus, more and more and more arranging our lives around the gospel itself so that it's clear to all who see us, there's a person who believes in Jesus. There's a person who believes that he actually died and rose again. How do we order our lives in such a way that that's the testimony of our lives? Well, that's actually what the New Testament is about. Jesus' teaching about not only how we believe in him and become his followers, but then how we become observers of his instructions to gather as a church, to be baptized like us Baptists do, right? To uh, partake of the ordinances, the Lord's Supper, right? What does Jesus say? When you do this in remembrance of me, you proclaim his death until he comes. Think about our lives on a personal level. How do we order our lives around the gospel in such a way that the world knows that I believe in a crucified and risen Savior, Jesus? That the decisions of my life may look crazy if you don't believe in Him, but if you do, I'm living a logical, organized, reasonable, arranged life, all centered on the person of Jesus Christ. That that's the hill that I'll die on to represent Him. How could the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, be the answer to every why question in your life? Why do you work where you work? Why do you go to work in the morning? Why do you care for your family in that way? How do you arrange your budget? Why do you give money to this and give money to this? And why do you make decisions that way? Why do you spend so much time with your family? Why do you go to church? Why are you so nice? Why do you take such good care of your home? Why don't you complain very much? That that our lives would be ordered in such a way that the answer to all those questions would be, I believe Jesus died and rose again, and that foundational truth orders everything else in my life, and I'd love to tell you more about it.
See, this is what it means to be a Christian. It means we see reality and our lives are a testimony to the truth that there's a Savior of the world named Jesus who died for our sins and rose again. And there's no other reasonable choice but to believe in Him and to live for Him that all would know and come to faith in Christ. Father, we thank you so much for this passage and the example of the Apostle Paul. We thank you that it is not crazy to believe in you, to believe your word, to believe in Jesus, and to order our lives around him. And so we do ask for your help. In a world where those who do not believe in Christ might look at us like we've lost our minds, help us to more faithfully order our lives around the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen and coming again. We praise you for him, and in his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.